turning to the book of Acts, chapter 11. We continue our reading through this masterpiece work of history by Luke, who also wrote Luke. This is his sequel. We are in chapter 11 today, verses 19 through 30. True church vitality. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we do come before you, Lord, as children in great need of a Father's help. We ask, O Father, that in the endless depths of your love for us, your everlasting love, that you now continue your faithfulness to us in granting us to hear the voice of the Master. Grant us to recognize the authority in your word. Grant us, O Lord, to be subdued by your spirit, to be helped in our understanding, to receive increase of faith, to hold fast to your word, though all the world give way. Grant these things to us, to your praise, to your honor, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. Beloved, it was the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor for 30 years of Westminster Chapel, London, who said, there is no better test of our spiritual state and condition than our missionary zeal, our concern for lost souls. That is always the thing, said Lloyd-Jones, that divides people who are just theoretical and intellectual Christians from those who have a living and vital spiritual life a concern 
for lost souls. It is a heaven-born instinct set within the heart of those who themselves were once lost, this missionary zeal. They know they would still be lost if God had not brought them to Jesus Christ by faith because they now know it is only Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Remember, please do remember, you become a Christian not because you grow up as a Christian. No one becomes a Christian by the recipe of spending the right amount of time in the right location. The flesh cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. No one becomes a Christian by growing up around other Christians, even ones they are related to. We must be born of God, not just born of a woman. You become a Christian when the Holy Spirit comes and persuades you that your sin has separated you from God, that you are lost, far from God, under God's judgment. But the Spirit of God also comes and reveals to you how God himself, the one whom you have offended, he has prepared a sacrifice for you, the body and blood of Jesus. Not sparing his own son, God gave his son up to death on a cross to redeem you from the curse. And hearing this in your soul, you embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to you and you are saved. You have become a Christian. Now, knowing what God has done for you, you are compelled to make it known to others because the seed of God himself has been planted in you, and he is compelled to make what he has done known to those desperately needing it, and that seed is in you. Lloyd-Jones is right. There are others still without God, still lost in their sins like you once were, still without Christ like you once were, still without salvation like you once were. This is one big thing we see in our reading this morning. We are seeing this true mark of church vitality. And where do we see it? It's in the church's concern for lost souls. Our text says the church was scattered because of persecution. Threats, violence, hatred, they have all erupted against the church in Jerusalem right after Stephen was stoned to death. So while they still had an opportunity to preserve, their, to preserve their own lives, these church members took that opportunity. They fled, but they did not become silent. Do you see that? 19 and 20. They did not keep their faith to themselves. They did not develop a principle of privatized religion. No, as they scattered, they spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some spoke the gospel of salvation only to the Jews, verse 19, but that would soon come to an end. Others, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, spoke the gospel of salvation to the Greeks, especially the ones living in Antioch. 
Antioch of Syria. And Antioch, the third largest city of the Roman Empire, it would soon become one of the most significant cities for Christians in that era. When when these Christians begin to arrive, the population is 500,000. It will swell with Christians in the next 100 years. Let us understand, then, one of the things Luke is telling us in the reading, the church, this is so important, the church did not interpret a hard providence, persecution, as a sign from God that they were being too bold, or that Stephen was being too bold. Not at all. They continued in Stephen's boldness themselves as they were scattered, But neither did they interpret a hard providence, persecution, as a sign from God to become harder themselves, to become less merciful, to become less compassionate, to become less generous with the gospel, to become less visible in society. That is not at all how they interpreted the hardness of persecution. The hatred of the ungodly does not create hatred in the saints. It did not do so in Christ. It does not do so in those in whom he dwells. It did not do so in the head. It does not do so in the body. Under persecution, the church desired the salvation of sinners even more. Remember Stephen He was the ignition switch of this persecution. 11.19 is a reference back to 8.1, where it says the same thing. Stephen's martyrdom fired the rage of the wicked, but it also fired something else, the compassion of the church of God. What did Stephen say when he was dying? Talk about sowing seeds As the stones were buffeting his body, soon to bring his organs to death, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That prayer, which was an imitation of Christ from the cross, that fueled the church in the midst of hard providence. And they did not harden. They softened. There's only one reason the hatred of the ungodly would create hatred in the saints. It would mean the saints love their lives in this world more than they love imitating their Savior. It would mean the saints want earth more than they want heaven. That would be the only explanation if the church got harder under hardship. Now let's make sure we don't misunderstand something, though. The persecuted early church sought to preserve their own lives. They scattered but they were not seeking to preserve their reputation. They were not seeking the admiration of men. They scattered for safety, not for cowardice. They continued to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. They continued to announce man's need for salvation. They continued to pledge their allegiance to a leader who had died and is now alive forevermore. In fact, they spoke so much of Christ and so often of Christ 
Verse 26 says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The wording here seems to mean they did not first call themselves Christians, but the people of Antioch first called them Christians, and probably in a derisive way. They spoke so much of Christ, the people of that great cosmopolitan city, the third largest in the empire, sarcastically named them Christians. So they spoke of him in all the cities they passed through and in all the cities they settled in. As the late Alexander McLaren put it, the coals were scattered from the hearth in Jerusalem by the armed heel of violence. That did not put the fire out, but only spread it. For wherever they were flung, they kindled a blaze. Which means two very significant things for you. Number one, the early church regarded their neighbors as lost souls. Their neighbors were not okay. If they were okay, they would not speak of Jesus to them. They were not okay, just as they were. They needed a savior, and the church knew it. Does the church know it today? Contemporary surveys of the beliefs of the church find that the majority of people in evangelical churches think it is wrong to evangelize. What kind of churches were those? Evangelical, which means the gospel proclaimed, the gospel believed. The early church did not think their neighbors were okay. The Jews weren't okay. The people of Antioch were not okay. They needed a savior. The church must never adopt the world's theology. And believe me, the world has a theology. The late James Montgomery Boyce said, the world's theology is easy to define. It is the view that human beings are basically good, that no one really is lost, that belief in Jesus Christ is not necessary for salvation. The early church rejected the world's theology. So must you. And because they did, the world has been blessed ever since with missionary zeal. But there's a second significance to how the church kept speaking of Christ as a savior wherever they were scattered. The second significance is this. The church recognized that the reason they were alive, the reason they were passing through the cities they were passing through was to make Christ known. Beloved, why are you alive right now? My cousin Joey died when he was nine, hit by a car on the way to the mailbox. Why are you alive? Why are you living in the cities you're living in? Why do you attend a church that is sat and settled in this city? Here's the answer. You are alive right now in the cities in which you are alive right now to glorify God by making known the salvation only possible in his son. In his letter to the Christians living in the city of Colossae, the Apostle Paul tells them why they are alive. 
and why they are alive in the city in which they are alive, Colossae. He says, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4, 3 through 5. To pursue our chief end, Paul is saying, we must also call unbelievers to their chief end by embracing the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. But the truth is, we often languish under a dullness towards these wonderful, urgent, eternal things, don't we? We often slip into that dullness. We so easily stop praying to God to open a door for the word of salvation to enter. We so easily lose sight of why we know the people we know, why we keep seeing that same face at the quick trip. We, we stop thinking like a Christian so easily because the flesh is so weak. But praise God, the spirit is willing. Indeed, we should be the ones who pray and speak with more vigor because we are the ones who can contemplate that it was God in his love and power that first sent his son into the world when men were not seeking salvation. He didn't wait until we were seeking it. He's not different now. All the vigor belongs on us who know these things. We should pray and speak with more vigor because we are the ones who can see with the eyes of faith what verse 21 says this morning in our text. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. And they turned to the Lord. (laughs) All evangelism and salvation is from the hand of the Lord to the Lord, and repentance and faith. We can see that. This should set great fires on our mountaintops, signaling one another to bring the good news out. Be not afraid of men. Speak of Christ to them. The authority and the power of the Lord Jesus in heaven, that's the Lord of verse 21. He is near his church on earth when she proclaims the Savior to the lost. But why are we dulled by this so easily? Well, remember what Revelation 12:11 said about those who, by God's grace, persevere to the end. It says, they loved not their lives even unto death. But I think there are a lot of churchgoers who love their lives too much. And because they love their lives too much, persecution and famine, now let's update this, inflation and political opposition and all sorts of earthly travails dull them to the eternal realities of men's souls, even their own soul. Did persecution dull our brothers and fathers 
in the early church? It did not. We are to know that it did not, so that it does not dull us. That's how the word works. That's how the spirit works. Jesus talked about this so frequently, this dulling. In Luke 8:14, he spoke of the seed that fell among the thorns. It represents those who hear, he said, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Again, in Luke 21, 34, Jesus said, Watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with the cares of this life. And in Luke 14, 18, our Lord spoke of those who make excuses for why they will not be able to attend his great banquet and why they won't be inviting others. One said, I have bought a field and I must go see it. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Jesus says these excuses make him angry. So he sent his banquet invitations to others. Who do you suspect are the others? The poor and crippled and blind and lame. People who would see such an invitation as better than oxen, better than a wife, better than a field. People who would see such an invitation as the best thing they own in this world. That's who he invites then. Let's extend this a little bit. Have you noticed how easy it is in our day to be more interested in family life than eternal life? How easy it is in our day, in our state, to be more interested in the family than the salvation of men, even our own salvation. The cares of this life seem to rest most heavily on people in matters of family life. People reinvest so much of their time and so much of their money into their family and so little into the advance of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. Why do you suppose that is? I think it is because the gears in our hearts and in our minds start slipping and we start believing our own works will get done in our families, what Jesus has promised to do if we ask him and rest in him. We get overtaken by worry. But do you know that so much of man's worry is rooted in his self-righteousness? His fear of what he's not going to accomplish? What will people think of my marriage? What will people think of my kid? What will people think of our educational achievements? And slowly, because we want to labor under the weight of works instead of walk on the lightness of Christ's promise, slowly we become less and less interested in the gracious works of God and more interested in the works of man. And it's proven in our prayerlessness. Jesus said, just ask your father. He is pleased to give you the kingdom. Well, I'll ask after I'm done working so hard and worrying so much. And we don't. 
Pretty soon, the savior of sinners is just a small little figurine, a bobblehead in the back seat on the floor. And we love the joy of our own salvation, and we lose the zeal for the salvation of others because we have so much to do and do and do. The gospel of achievement and performance and our own awesomeness pushes out the free gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Do we really think Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, the Lord of the living and dead, will honor the works of men who pray not for his grace? Do you think he will really give to us what we are working so hard to produce? Yes, sometimes we're using the world's tools. We're going to use sports and schooling and all sorts of things to produce what we want to see, really what we want the world to see in our kids. But Jesus says, fall on your face and pray. I will give you better things. I will give you salvation. What breaks this fever of dullness? What breaks it is hearing how much God himself has invested in our salvation. How much God himself invest in the advancement of his son's kingdom. He invests the body and blood of his one and only. He did not spare his one and only. Parents, if you're still quizzical about what I'm saying, hear the good words of our fellow OPC pastor, Tony Phelps. If you think that saves your children, you are still thinking according to the covenant of works. If you think that your parental failures have caused your children to walk away from Christ, you have forgotten the covenant of grace. And such a mind that forgets such things is the only heart and mind that we bring to the world around us, to our fellow city dwellers in Antioch. We stop offering them the free salvation of Jesus Christ. And we start judging them by their works. We start counting their trespasses against them. The very opposite of what Paul says when he preaches the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5. God is no longer counting your trespasses against you. That unties the stony heart of the elect everywhere. What breaks this fever? Seeing God's investment in the salvation of sinners. This is where he places his power on the earth. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. It's not merely a statement of his hand of grace. It includes that. It's not merely a statement of his hand of wisdom. It includes that. But it is most particularly a statement of his hand of power. Everything we are doing in our lives is about a question of power. Can I get this done in my family? Can I get this done in my vocational life? Can I get this done in my relationships? The power is in the hand of the Lord. In the salvation of sinners 
and in the fruitfulness of that salvation. I'm very helped by this statement by Pastor Adriel Sanchez, PCA pastor in California. He says, quote, the explosive growth of the Protestant church in China is a wonderful reminder that God does not need the help of the state to advance his gospel. Christ has the key of David, and he opens wide doors for the gospel that no earthly power can shut. We don't need to wait till the political climate is better to call our neighbors to Christ. We don't need to wait until things are more friendly to Christian virtue to call our neighbors to Christ. All of that waiting is calculated by a trust in human power. Our trust is in the power of the hand of the Lord. Our trust is in the grace that Barnabas saw, and he was glad. You know, that's how we should come to church every Sunday, that little statement about Barnabas. He came to Antioch and saw the grace of God and was glad. That's how you should see everyone gathered to the word and sacrament on a Sunday. It should gladden you. And all the small, trivial things that might bother you about me should fall away. For on that day and in that place, the grace of God is on display. And I am gathered to Christ as you. Beloved, when the Holy Spirit puts a man or woman in possession of Christ, who is the very salvation of God, a seed is planted in the soul that begins to grow in many directions. And one of the chief branches that comes forth is the impulse for others to know the salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ. That is a small, weak branch when we ourselves have lost the wonder and amazement that we were once lost souls and have come to the salvation of God in Christ. But when we are fresh in that grace, when we are gladdened by it so easily, that branch grows thick and strong and mighty. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you and thank you that it pleases you to let the hand of the Lord Jesus reach and rule on the earth in the souls of men. Father, we confess that we sometimes and too often and too long become very dull in a concern for lost souls and the maturity and the vitality and the spirituality of our faith is sorely weakened. Father, we confess this is so often true of us because we are so easily turned to the power of men, fixated upon what we are doing, what we can't do, what we are unable to do, and not fixated upon what the Lord's hand does. Father, forgive us for this. 
Grant us to see again that it pleases you to seek and save the lost, and we have not come to you any other way. We have not been gathered into your house, been named your children, because we are good. We have been gathered because you are good, and you have done everything necessary to be done to adopt us into your family. You have justified us. You have sanctified us. You are sanctifying us and will glorify us. All this from the Lord's hand to the Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would revive us in the knowledge of this wonderful, amazing grace and that we would be liberated to be recovered and renewed in our right mind to why we are alive right now and why we live in the cities we live in right now, to glorify you and calling other men and women to glorify you and to enjoy you through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name, amen.